218 years ago, our nation was born. The American dream, however, started much earlier than that poignant day when the Declaration of Independence was signed in Philadelphia. And the never-to-be-silenced peals of liberty reverberated throughout the land. It began the moment men and women landed on the mysterious shores of this new world and started to envision the possibilities before them. When our Pilgrim Fathers left the land of litigation and came to the land of liberty and knelt upon the shore of Plymouth Rock and dedicated this country to God, that was part of the dream. When Roger Williams was driven from Massachusetts by religious persecution, lasted through a cold New England winter, and then founded the state of Rhode Island with these words, We will make this a state in which no religious test will be imposed on any of its residents. That was a part of that dream. When Jonathan Edwards shook the nation with his evangelical preaching, when John Leland, a Virginia Baptist, agitated the nation for a Bill of Rights, when Lincoln consoled the nation with his Gettysburg Address, when Roosevelt soothed the nation with his fireside chats, when Kennedy challenged the nation with his inaugural address, when American soldiers braved the deprivations of war in every century and on every continent to preserve a nation born in freedom and cradled in liberty that was part of the dream. More than 200 years of history stand behind us in which men and women, different in every other way and yet bound together by their national heritage, have strived to fulfill that dream of a nation in which all men of all ages and all races and all sexes could enjoy the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We need to recognize that that dream has not yet been realized and that the work has not yet been completed. The American dream can yet become a horrible nightmare if we do not recognize the fact that citizenship is an unfinished task. Paul had that in mind when he wrote to the Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word translated manner of life is a Greek form from which we get our word political or politics. It comes from an ancient verb, polites, which means citizen. So what Paul is literally saying is, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? And how can we exhibit citizenship worthy of the gospel of Christ and move America into the most glorious period of its history? First of all, it will take a confessing America. We must never so idealize the achievements of our nation that we positionize as unpatriotic anyone who dares to be critical. Love it or leave it, the bumper stickers say, by which we mean, don't say anything bad about America. The greatest friend a country has sometimes is the one who will point out its faults. The greatest friends Israel ever had were not those who acquiesced to their godless leaders, 
But those fiery prophets like Amos and Jeremiah and Hosea who proclaimed impending doom if a nation did not mend its ways, their prophetic proclamations were not issued because these prophets hated their nation, but because they loved it. And they said that the pathway their nation was taking was leading to disaster, and they wanted to avert it because they wanted the best for their nation. Chuck Colson was right on when he wrote, Regardless of political persuasion, evangelicals must strive to be of one mind. We ought to show unfailing civility to government officials. But being civil does not mean being silent or forsaking politics. Priestly sanctification must always be balanced with prophetic criticism. To fall short of either responsibility is to betray our richest heritage and deny our biblical calling. I love America. I thank God that I was born in the United States. I realize the priceless privileges that are ours as citizens of this country. Chills run up my spine when I see a flag. Tears come to my eyes when I sing, God bless America. I am a patriot, but I believe with all my heart that we need to send out across this land the message that America needs to confess her sins before Almighty God. Foy Valentine was right when he said, We are experiencing in America a moral earthquake that registers 10 on God's Richter scale. There will be no fulfillment of our dreams until we cleanse ourselves of this moral cancer. The signs of immorality are all around us. When I hear that a burglary is committed every 10 seconds in this nation, and a violent crime is committed every 33 seconds, and a forcible rape is committed every 10 minutes, and a murder is committed every 25 minutes, then I'm convinced that we need a confessing America. When I read that 10,000 people in our world starve to death every day, and yet I see us Americans gorging ourselves and wasting enough food to feed a hungry world, I'm convinced that we need a confessing America. When I realize that our nation is literally, literally obsessed X, and then I read where Arnold Toynbee, the great historian, has said that no nation has ever survived that failed to discipline itself sexually, I'm convinced that we need a confessing America. When I hear that a hundred Americans die a week from adverse reactions to drugs, that 40% of all workers steal from their employers, and that only 40% of the people in this country ever worship God at all, then I'm convinced that we need a confessing America. Inscribed on the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. are these words, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. We should tremble, for the signs of immorality are all around us. We make light of sins today, but there is no answer for sin except God's forgiveness. And there is no way to experience God's forgiveness except through confession. That's why on this special day, 
we must remind ourselves that the first step is to confess our sins before an almighty God and receive cleansing from Him. Citizenship that glorifies Christ is that which leads our nation toward morality and integrity. Second, it will take a concerned America. We must avoid so isolating ourselves from the political arena that we fail to have any influence on what happens to our country. Let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Paul said. The only kind of citizenship that will glorify Christ is that which, after having acknowledged our problems, actively seeks to do something about them. Every Christian would say amen to the call for repentance from the moral depravity of our nation that I've just issued. But what we need to realize is that apathy and non-involvement are sins also. He who knows to do right and does it not, to him, the Bible says, is sin. One of the greatest sins of our day is the lack of involvement in the political affairs of our nation. With what agility we try to escape from that responsibility. Politics are dirty, we say. Then we are to get in and clean them up. The government is going to pot, we say. Then we ought to get involved and put it right. The voters are stupid, we say. Then we ought to inform them. The powers of evil have control of our nation, we say. Then we ought to band together for the king and infiltrate the domain of evil with the life-giving, life-emitting power of God. They don't care anymore, we say. Don't ever say they when you talk about America. We are they. And if anything is to be done about the problems of our nation, then we're going to have to do it. And we as God's children ought to be leading the way. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And the only way we can do that is to penetrate the social framework of the nation, to infiltrate the political framework of our world with our saving influence. And the responsibility of freedom is to live responsibly because there isn't anything simple about freedom. The responsibility of freedom is to preserve it because nothing can be lost so quickly as freedom. When the Constitution was finally signed and they left Constitutional Hall, one man who was strategic in the framing of the Constitution, Benjamin Franklin, was asked, What have you given us today? And his answer was, Liberty if you know how to keep it. The responsibility of freedom is to guarantee your freedom for every man. And that's the hardest thing about it. It's very difficult for us to want the other man to have the same freedom we have. But unless they do, there's no guarantee of our own liberty. Yes, we have believed in freedom and we fought for it around the world. We have agreed with Dwight Eisenhower, a soldier's pack in the final choice is not as heavy as a prisoner's chains. But we need to understand the price of keeping freedom is much more costly than the price of obtaining it. It calls for sacrifice. And sacrifice is still the key to accomplishment. Stephen F. Austin, the founder of, the, of Texas, 
sacrifice the possibility of marriage and family to, quote, redeem Texas from its wilderness state, he said. Quote, I was married to my colonist. General George Rogers Clark saved the Northwest Territory for the United States, but he lost about everything he valued in the process, his sweetheart, his fortune, his leg, and his life. It is interesting to see what happened to those 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Nine of them died in, in the Revolutionary War. Five of them were captured by the British as traitors and tortured till they died. Twelve of these men had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost sons in the war. Carter Braxton of Virginia, who was a wealthy planter and trader, saw his merchant ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his remaining possessions and properties to pay his debts, and he died in rags. Vandals or soldiers or both looted the properties of most of them. When his home was taken over by General Cornwallis of the Brittany at the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson, Jr. quietly turned to General George Washington and urged him to open fire on his home. Fire commenced. His home was completely destroyed, and he died in bankruptcy. John Hart was driven from his deathbed, the, from the deathbed of his wife, along with his 13 children who fled in terror for their lives. In support of the Declaration of Independence, these 56 men pledged three things, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Most of them lost the first two, but not one of them lost the last. Number three, it's going to take a committed America. Not only must we refuse to idealize our nation that we fail to see its faults, and not only must we refuse to so isolate ourselves from our nation that we fail to influence it for good, So refuse to so idolize our nation that we put dedication to our nation above devotion to our God. Citizenship which glorifies Christ is that which renders to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's and recognizes the distinction between them. Our first allegiance must be to the Lamb. The greatest service we could render would be to remind America that there is a capital city greater than Washington, a leader more powerful than the president, a citizenship more valuable than American citizenship, a land more cherished than the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we need to make it very clear that connection with that city and relation with that leader and possession of that citizenship and acquisition of that land comes not in the stars and stripes of old glory, but in the blood-bought flag of righteousness given to all believers by Jesus Christ our Lord.
Abraham Lincoln was right. The question is not whether God is on our side. The question is whether we're on God's side. That is true of us as a nation. That is true of us as an individual. There is no hope for our nation, no possibility for the fulfillment of our dreams, no opportunity for the completion of our task if we are not. Now the question is, how does one, quote, be on God's side? Trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Some of you young people I've heard at Falls Creek came to trust in Christ and were saved there. What a thrill to hear that when, you, when your counselors return. Only through His grace and power can you be delivered from the power over, over sin. Furthermore, when you receive Christ as your Savior, the Bible becomes a living book which can guide your life and your family. Make a commitment, second, of your life to practice moral living. There is no such thing as being sort of moral or sort of pure. I speak to each of us. Purpose in your heart that you will live by the standards clearly outlined in the Scriptures. Number three, make a commitment to raise up a godly heritage. Parents, it's one thing to give a lecture. It's another thing to live an exemplary life. You cannot raise up a godly heritage with the television on all the time. Your Bible never opened and poor church attendance. If you don't live a life that is above reproach, you can't expect your children to do more. You will not lecture them into morality. They will learn how to make decisions by seeing how you make decisions. It's not easy to raise up a godly heritage. It takes work. It may require many agonizing nights on your knees, but it is possible, it is imperative. Fourth, you must speak against sin. Call it what it is and seek to deliver the sinner. God hates sin, loves the sinner. When Jesus ministered to the Samaritan woman, he denounced the sin that was in her life, but he loved her and he delivered her. Five, Join with your church in reaching out to people in this community who are estranged from God. There are real people in this community with real hurts. We need to reach out to them with compassion. Six, you must pray a prayer of repentance for the sins of our nation. How long has it been since you prayed a prayer of repentance for this unfair? godly nation. Repent of your own sin or lack of concern and involvement. Seek the face of God. Then he said, I'll hear from heaven 
and will forgive your sin and I will heal your land. With the blessing and privileges that are ours, let me unitedly cry out to God, long may our land be bright. With freedom's holy light, protect us by thy might. Great God, our King. Amen. Our Father, on this special day that recognizes a freedom, help us to know that there is a greater freedom. And that freedom is to know Jesus Christ who said, you shall know the truth and he shall make you free. And if he makes you free, you are free indeed. I pray this morning that in these amidst, in the midst of these symbols and songs of freedom, that we'll recognize the freedom of the greater bondage, and that is a commitment to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And give us courage to repent of sin both sin of commission and omission as a people today. For I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Now there is no reason why we should not give you an opportunity this morning to come to know Jesus Christ, to rededicate your life to a life of exemplary righteousness, or to place your life in the discipline of a church. When Jesus comes back, He's coming back for the church. And so while our choir sings, we'll invite you to come. Perhaps you've made a decision at Bible school or Falls Creek that you want to make public today, and we're excited that you're willing to do that. Andy will be here at the front to receive you, and Ed, we invite you to come as we stand to sing.